Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of E-Radio. Um, I was having some sound problems getting started connecting to the Blog Talk Radio, so if you are in the chat room now, if you could please let me know if you guys can hear us okay uh, before I get started today, that would be great. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and at, ask that in the chat room as well. And then we will get started as soon as I have confirmation that I'm not getting ready to talk with nobody being able to understand me. Um, <laughs> so that being the case, um, moving on, um, welcome to V-Radio. If this is your first time turning into V-Radio, um, please visit my website, vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, and uh, there you can find archives of more shows like this one, including uh, also basically interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, um scientists and people who are pertinent to what you've been working with as far as the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project, the Love Police, meaning with Charlie Veach, uh, lots of different elements here, and uh, I hope that you'll be interested in supporting the show, especially now, because it's kind of in trouble. I'll get into that in a minute. Um, before I get into this, uh, let me move on to a little bit of news, um, some rather unfortunate news, actually. Uh Apparently, Charlie Veach has decided to end the Love Police. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this here. He just posted this blog a few moments ago. It is with great sadness and with great happiness that I announced the end of the Love Police as a project. It was actually meant to end many times before with a film called Unanimous Declaration of the Resistance and Every End is a New Beginning, as well as the many public announcements I have made saying that the project was done. I would like to thank the thousands upon thousands of emails I have received saying that the films help wake them up politically, spiritually, philosophically, and perhaps literally as well. These emails prove to me that there was something there, that the work was not all in vain, and that there is some permanence beneath the absurdity. I glimpsed this, this permanence a few times. I would like to apologize to anyone who felt personally insulted by any of the actions. Hey, at least you weren't offended. Or, or, I'm sorry, at least when you were offended, you can walk away and nothing happens. We are all uh, we are truly at the brink of something major, and I do not feel the passion to megaphone nor attend rallies, protests, or any action that I feel is merely throwing a glass of water into the inferno that is civilized society itself. The madness runs deep, too deep for any rational or logical turnaround. No, this slave ship must be smashed against the rocks as the final act of rebellion. See you on the journey, Charlie Beach. Um, I have to say that was kind of unfortunate, but um, things have been pretty uh, crazy on his end of things for a while. It's It's been a lot harder to reach him. Uh, but if you're interested in hearing more, I've had Charlie Beach on the show, I think, like three different times. Uh, you can find those shows in the archives. Uh, in addition, in the links page, for vradio.org, you can find uh, links to his um, YouTube channel as well as his former partner, Danny Shine's YouTube channel. So you guys can check all that out there. I just got that piece of breaking news, and it's kind of sad, but, you know, hey, um, there was lots of good work that came out of that. So in any case, um, as far as uh, what's going on with vradio, uh, things financially around here, I mean, it's kind of ironic. Speaking of shows about financial collapse, 
things around here financially have kind of um, hit the bottom. Uh, there are a lot of medical problems that recently uh, popped up for me, including the discovery of uh, what they described as a nodule in my lungs. Um, it's possible that I may have cancer. We don't know what's going on with that yet, but in the meantime, the uh, the rest of the circumstances, as far as what I what it is that I generally ask for donations for, are all still there. Um, and donations have kind of tapered off recently, but I haven't been pushing for them as hard as I used to. Um, I did manage to lower the amount that I would need significantly, but they're still not coming in. Uh, if you guys are enjoying V Radio and you think it's worth something to you, uh, please do me a favor and check out and give a donation. I need $250 in donations to stay on the air. Um, I have more shows lined up, and I will try to do them regardless, but it's kind of a situation of uh, the circumstances in this household have gotten desperate. And I've been you know, bouncing on you know, back, you know, back and forth from that for some time. Uh, with any luck, we'll be able to pull out of that. I do enjoy doing V Radio for you guys, and I've been trying to you know, produce all the best quality shows. Um, and that, that's one of the reasons why we had a bit of a delay in the beginning of the month. I needed to take a small break to get some perspective and also to work on other projects like the Troll documentary, which is still going to happen regardless. Uh, and uh, so that's the news that I have. You know, please visit vvideo.org, vhighradio.org, click donate, give whatever it is that you can, whatever it is you think that V Radio is worth, because uh, we're kind of down to the wire on that end. So that being said... Um, we're going to introduce our guests. We're going to start with um, Fabian. Please introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, I'm Fabian Ruiz. Um, I'm an activist for the Zeitgeist Movement. Um, I'm on board with the movement, and it's on a message. And uh, yeah, that's just that's about it. All right, well, um, and then... The uh, next guest is Fernando from Chile. Go ahead and introduce... I'm sorry, Argentina. Please go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, this is Fernando Aguirre from Argentina. Um, I'm talking from Buenos Aires right now, actually. And I'm a blogger and writer. And I've written a book about uh, surviving the economic collapse based on my perspective from when that happened in 2001 in Argentina. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask both of you... Uh, Sorry, I'm going to ask both of you to, the same question that I always ask. What was the precipice? What was the moment in your life that made you decide to become an activist and kind of step out of the materialist culture into, you know, the culture that you're in now? Yeah, Fernando, you, go ahead, Should Fabian. I answer that first? Or? I, well, I was going to ask Fabian to do it. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Sure, I'll go. I'll go. Uh, but what basically uh, it changed my life was my uh, my friend. You know, initially he showed me this uh, this Alex Jones documentary called Endgame, but uh, I didn't really pay attention to it. It, it didn't really uh, you know click in my head. I mean, he was trying to show me some information on how like you know there's certain elite out there and they kind of control things behind the scenes, but uh, for, for some reason, it was just boring, and I shut off, and I, I didn't pay any attention to it, but then he uh, he sent me Zeitgeist Addendum, and uh, for whatever reason, that, that movie just, uh, I guess you could say, lit a fire under my ass, and then ever since then, uh, I, I haven't been the same, you know, I've 
I, I, I see the, the world from a different perspective. All right. Um, now I'm going to go ahead and go to you, Fabian, although, I'm sorry, not Fabian, Fernando, although it's obvious from your background and the reason you're on this show, you probably have some really good life, you know, lifetime events that would be <laughs> examples of trying to tell you that the world needed to change, but I'll go ahead and, you know, start it from you and just forgot you started it, you know, working along the lines of trying to change the world for the better. Yeah, well, I am... Um... I don't know if I changed the world for the better. I I like to think that I influence some people into seeing things uh, the way they they are. Um, mostly, I I realized a lot of this stuff when when our economy collapsed in 2001. We had uh, banks closing and people losing their money. The the money you had in your pocket started dropping in its purchasing value right away. So. It was a pretty much of an eye opener to see how within hours your your money lost seventy percent of its value, and you just needed so much more of it to to get by. So all those things it, it changed the the way in which you you perceive the, the world you live in. Right. Now. We decided to get together today to talk about this. Uh, thankfully, you know, I appreciate Fabian you putting the energy into gathering the what was necessary together for this show. Um, and I, if those of you who are listening now, I gave a link to a Wikipedia um, article about the Argentine economic crisis of 1999 through 2002. Um, although apparently things are not getting much better there from what you were telling me off the air, so maybe the crisis isn't quite over yet. Um, but basically, you're going to read a little bit here. The Argentine economic crisis was a financial situation that affected Argentina's economy during the late 1990s and early 2000s. Macroeconomically speaking, the critical period started with the decrease of a real uh, GDP, meaning uh, you know, uh, in 1999 and ended in 2002 with the return of GDP growth. But the origins of the collapse of Argentina's economy and their effects on the population can be found in the action before origins. Argentina was subject to a military dictatorship, alternating with weak, short-lived democratic governments for many years. That resulted in a number of significant economic problems. During the national reorganization process, 1976 to 1983, huge debt was acquired for money that was later lost in unfinished projects. The Falcons were, and the state's takeover of private debts. In this period, a neoliberal economic platform was introduced. By the end of the by the end of the military government, the country's industries were severely affected, and unemployment, calculated at 18 percent, though official figures claimed 5 percent, was at its highest point since the Great Depression. In 1983, democracy in the country was restored with the election of President Raúl Alfonso. The new government's plans included stabilizing Argentina's economy, including the creation of a new currency, the Austral first of its kind not to carry the word peso at the part of its name, for which new loans were required. The state eventually became unable to pay the interest of this debt, and confidence in the Austral collapsed. Inflation, which has led uh, which has had I'm sorry, which had been held to ten to twenty percent a month, spiraled out of control. Yeah. In July nineteen eighty nine, Argentina's Argentina's inflation reached two hundred percent and that month alone topping 5,000% uh, for the year. During the Alfonsin years, unemployment did not substantially increase, but real wages fell by almost half to the lowest level in 50 years. 
Amid riots, President Alfonsin resigned five months before ending his term, and Carlos Minimum, I'm sure I said that wrong, who was already president-elect, took office. Um, so, that being said, I'm going to go ahead and uh, give the floor over to you, Fernando. Do you want to give some commentary on basically where were you during this collapse and how it impacted you? Well, what happened is that with after after Menem came uh, a new government that was even more liberal uh, in its politics, more neoliberal in the way they handle things. Uh, that didn't help much, so unemployment kept going up. And during the the time when Menem was our president, we had our economy, our peso pegged artificially to the dollar to a one-to-one exchange rate. So thanks to that, you were making lots of of dollars in Argentina working uh, an average middle-class job, right? You were make you were actually making more dollars in Argentina than the average worker in USA. Of course, <laughs> no. that comes. Yeah, of course that comes with, with a cost that you eventually have to pay. We we ended up having the devaluation of currency, uh, losing, as I said before, 70%, 75% of its value. Um, there, there was rioting, there was uh, bank runs, they eventually had to close because everyone was emptying their accounts. I mean, it, it collapsed in December 2001. The thing is that after all these years, we're pretty much in the same situation right now. We have an artificially... <laughs> An artificially pegged uh, peso to the dollar to a four-to-one exchange rate, which isn't very realistic either, because uh, salaries have gone up so much that now people are earning too much money in dollars, and everything is is uh, because of inflation. Everything is still very expensive as well. So you make a ton of money, but it's still not enough because everything is more expensive than in USA or, or in Europe. So. Eventually, we'll have to devaluate the peso once again. So basically, it's you guys are already kind of uh, like a look into the future for what many economists predict for the United States economy and many other economies along the world that they are based in fiat currency. Is they inflate the currency, kind of like you know, giving somebody an aspirin to deal with a brain tumor um, until eventually it kills the economy. Uh, and it's interesting that there are so many people that deny that that's happening or that it could happen or that it's true. Uh, the propaganda in regards to finances is just insane. Uh, some of the numbers here that we've already quoted were just astonishing. Um, before I go on and, and read any more of the details, I'm going to go. Uh, did you have any comments, Fabian? No, I mean, I, I think. Um... You know, the the reason why the Argentinian situation interests me so much is because uh, I just see a lot of correlations with what happened to them and what could potentially happen to us. Like, you know, Fernando was stating, the peso is artificially pegged to the U.S. dollar. You know, our dollar is pegged to the Chinese dollar. That, you know, that way allows us to import a lot of their products because, you know, if their dollar was pegged from us, their dollar would probably rise in value and things would just get more expensive for us substantially and then they could, uh, you know, I guess China doesn't want that because they don't want to export less to the United States and since we're considered the reserve currency, um, everyone wants to hold U.S. dollars but um, so yeah, I just, I just see a lot of correlations. We're taking a lot of loans 
from you know from other countries to to finance our debt. I mean, Argentina took loans from the uh, Inter International Monetary Fund, if, if I'm not correct. Uh, yeah, we're going to get into that in a little bit as well. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I just I just see there's a lot of correlations between what happened in Argentina and and United States right now. Um, would Would you agree with that, Fernando? Or yeah, there's there's of course differences because you're talking about USA, which is a world leading power, and Argentina, which is uh, you know just another South American country. The thing is, during during a lot of a good amount of of, of time, during many years. Argentina was really a prosperous country within its region, especially after World War II. We were doing very well. Uh, we had lots of reserves in gold, which eventually disappeared. We were doing very well, but, you know, the poor choices, political choices, just destroyed the country. And that's something that could be happening in USA as well, and is already happening, as a matter of a fact. So... Yeah, looking at this again, you know, uh, essentially now, I guess let, let's get over before I read some more of the the statistics and all that. You know, um, what was life like during the course of this collapse? I mean, uh, I mean, could you take some moments to describe? I mean, what you know, did the did the stores stop having stuff on their shelves? Did you know, was it people lying in the streets? You know, was it more homeless? I mean, go ahead and give some of the real human element. Well, it's it's extremely complex to to explain all this, but you went from having a pretty normal life to just one day turn on the TV and see that all this was happening. You already knew that the financial system was going down months before it actually did. Uh, you know, some people, including myself, managed to close and close the account just a, a few days before before the bank run started and the banks closed their doors. Uh, by December 20th, uh, you, you started seeing lots of rioting in the street. That's when uh, that, those would be the key moments, you know, when, when the president made the speech trying to calm things down and just making things worse. You know, poor choice of words during those times can have disastrous consequences. So instead of everyone calming down a bit, every, everyone got even more upset because the problem wasn't being recognized as such. You know, they were treating you as, as a fool. And when you have a large amount of unemployment, when you have hungry people on the streets, that's a pretty bad idea. So what you saw on the streets was lots of looting the first few days. Uh, eventually, it, it would end. Uh, the supermarkets would get restocked. Everything would be fine for a few days later. Then new groups would show up demanding for uh, demanding food. There was, for months, there was sporadic rioting and looting in different places across the country. You just had to be careful and, you know, just keep your eyes open and be alert in case you ran into any of these. Yeah, now, the reason I brought that up, folks, is to those of you listening, you know, uh, this is a portal into what you could expect if a financial collapse occurs in some of these other countries. Now, you also notice that one of the things Jacques Fresco pointed out, what happened took place in that a military dictatorship took hold. Um, now, I imagine that is an interesting question to add. What was the state's response to the rioting? Was it harsh? Was it, I mean, was it apathetic? Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't enough. I, I, these days, it, it's even worse because many of those rioters eventually ended up taking position in the government itself. So. 
it's uh, officially not acceptable to stop when there's rioting and when there's looting. So um, there were some cases where police did their job, but for most of it, they just let people loot, burn, and destroy everything they wanted. Wow. Hey, <laughs> Fernando, uh, would you say, like, the, the rioting was kind of... Um, <clears throat> Synonymous, what happened um, with with like Rodney King? I, I mean, I don't know if you you see any yeah. saw any video. It's, it, it was kind of like that. Yeah, it could be something for for the guys thinking about what we're talking about right now. How it would happen in USA? It would happen like something like the Rodney King, King incident. It, take that to your local level. Of course, the more people you have, the more the more rioting you will have. And, that doesn't mean that if you're in a small town, you're safe. That means that in a small town, you will have a small amount of rioters, but there's also a smaller amount of police to control them. So it's not as if you're you're safe uh, anywhere when these incidents start, especially when people feel they can get away with it. That's the breaking point. You know, that that's the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. When they feel they can get away with it, they just, you know, the low life, just waiting at home, scared of, confronting the police, they just take advantage of the situation and go loot their favorite store. So it's better to stay home when these sort of incidents start. Yeah, I remember you you were uh you read a couple articles about this, uh that how you, you rec you don't recommend kind of being out in the country uh because, you know, you're you're all there by yourself, you know, you don't have any neighbors close by to help you out in case you know, you know, God forbid someone were to break into your house, things of that nature. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's pretty complex, and you have to look at the big picture as well. During an economic crisis like the one you're seeing all over the world these days, how viable is it to be in, in a very small town where there's little jobs, little employment? So it, it's not only about crime. There's There's lots of things to keep into consideration as well. How... Is it even possible for most folks to move to the sticks in the middle of nowhere and make a living out of out of out of the land? I don't know. It's it's pretty difficult. Yeah, I remember you also saying, um, <clears throat> typically after a financial collapse, most people move to the city because that's where the most job opportunity is. Exactly, and that that's something that you could relate to because it's not something that just happened in Argentina. It happened. During the Great Depression as well, the, the small towns just dying entirely because people moved to the cities looking for jobs. It, it happened in many other countries as well where the economy it collapsed for one reason or, or another. Now, um, I wanted to ask a little bit further here. Uh, one of the things that it stated here was kind of a solution uh, that was brought up was the uh, during I guess during recovery, worker-owned cooperatives and self-management. Um, during the economic collapse, many business owners and foreign investors threw all of their money out of the Argentine economy and sent it overseas. As a result, many small and medium enterprises closed due to lack of capital, thereby exasperating unemployment. Many workers at these enterprises, faced with the sudden loss of employment and no source of income, decided to reopen businesses on their own without the presence of the owners and their capital as self-managed cooperatives. Worker-managed worker -managed cooperatives, uh, cooperative business range from the ceramics factory, Xenon, Fossen, Pot, 
to the four-star hotel, Hotel Bowen, to suit factory Brookman, to printing press Silverit, and many others. In some cases, former owners sent police to remove workers out of the workplaces. This was sometimes successful, but in other cases, workers defended occupied workplaces against the state, the police, and the bosses. A survey by an Argentina newspaper in the capital found that about around one-third of the population had participated in general assemblies. The assemblies used to take place in street corners and public spaces and generally gathered to discuss ways of helping each other in the face of eviction or organizing around issues like health care, collective food buying, or conducting, sorry, or conducting free food distribution programs. Some assemblies started the to new, I'm sorry, started to create the new structures of healthcare and schooling to replace the old ones that were not working. Neighborhood assemblies met once a week in a large assembly to discuss issues after affecting the larger community. In 2004, A.V. Lewis and Naomi Klein, author of No Logo, released the documentary The Take about these events. Some businesses have now been legally purchased by the workers for nominal fees. Others remain occupied by workers who have no legal standing with the state and in some cases reject negotiation with the state on the grounds that working productively is its own justification. The Argentine government is considered a law, uh, is considering a law of expropriation that would transfer some occupied businesses to their worker managers. Now, the reason that this is important is that this is basically a situation that is similar to many things that have been suggested for a transition plan, and that is worker-owned cooperatives. If you remember the film Capitalism, A Love Story with Michael Moore, you see that he went to several businesses that were owned by the people who worked in them and that everybody essentially got you know, an equal wage, which is something else Jock had suggested during one of his interviews, and therefore his incentive was that everybody works harder than everybody gets more money. Uh, worker-owned cooperatives are also an example of anarcho-syndicalism, which you can learn about, obviously, by reading about it on Wikipedia, but it's one of the schools of anarchy where the means of production are communally owned by everyone. Um, you find it interesting that, you know, these business owners, you know, just like, you know, as Jock had said during the Great Depression, there were people without work, but there were factories just sitting there, you know, with no products being made. But because people didn't have those fictional pieces of paper, you know, the whole economy needed to screech to a halt. You know, there were homeless people sitting outside of, you know, empty buildings. There was you know, all kinds of situations like this that are just asinine when you look at it is that despite the fact that all of the resources and the ability for everyone to take care of themselves was sitting right there, nobody could use it because of the way that, you know, because everything had to be owned by specific people in a capitalist system that just doesn't work for the common people. Now, did you have any experience with any of these worker-owned cooperatives? Well, in my experience, most of them failed pretty fast. Uh, the ones that I know of, uh, they just didn't uh, work work nearly as well as they did before. There's there's several problems with this sort of uh, of setup, not least the one being corruption. The moment you you start making it okay for people to take what isn't theirs, uh, you face a, a series of of events that uh, if you haven't lived through that yourself, you don't see the, the full extent of how bad it can get. You first start allowing people to take over companies that they that don't belong to them. What you soon see is what we see here is that people believe they have a right to take houses that belong to other folks because they're not occupying at the moment. 
So oh, yeah. we, we started seeing people taking over buildings that the government was making for the homeless, and they said, okay, we are homeless. We're going to be taking over those, those houses. And instead of doing things right, they were doing things wrong. Instead of uh, assigning the houses to the people that really needed them uh, in a social welfare system, uh, you know, people that were just taking over the, the property were moving in, later moving out and selling it to the same people that were going to get it for free. Corruption gets involved in all this. And eventually a corrupt business or, or a corrupt system ends up in failure. You have to be careful with this sort of thing because uh, the best example would be looking at Venezuela. Would you want your country to end up like Venezuela? Would you want it, your country to end up like Cuba, where everything belongs to everyone, but at the same time, no one owns anything, and life is miserable in those places? And so it would have to be, it would have to come along with, a, obviously, it can't just be done willy-nilly. It has to be organized, you know, say yeah. via something like, you know, the scientific method, you know. <laughs> actually, yeah, it, it, it has to be very well organized because, because if not, the nature of many people isn't exactly very... Very good. There's lots of people that are out there to no good just looking to take advantage of the different opportunities that present themselves. Um, the, the, the government itself, our government is extremely corrupt. That's no mystery. We, we all know that. Uh, what happened with many of these co-ops is that they were handed over to the buddies of the government. So it, it all looks like very social and very very nice, but it's just uh, buddies giving what used to belong to someone else to their but to their friends uh, for uh, for a piece of it, right? Right. You know, uh, Fernando, going back to a little bit of the squatters, I I thought it was crazy when uh, you know I, I read one of your articles when uh, you were stating that like for example someone that owned a, a property of real estate but it was empty for a time being and let's say for example they would go on a vacation for about a month. Yeah, and then when they were come back from their vacation, they would have like a whole family living in the <laughs> house that they owned, and they yeah. would actually have more difficulty remo- like proving that they own the house than than the squatters saying that 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 house is theirs. And I was like, whoa, that's yeah. And you know what? It's happening in U.S. as well. That same thing is happening in U.S.A. as we speak. Yeah. yeah. You leave your house, they move in, they, they move in with five, four or five kids, and you cannot just, you know, rush in and kick them all out. Because there's, especially when there's kids involved, you know, the, the police, they will ask a judge, and the judge will take lots of time before they rule on anything. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I, I had a former roommate of mine do that exact same thing, you know, made me go through all of the the court system in order to get rid of him because, you know, he was being you know, obviously not a good roommate. Um, now, something here that was pointed out, and I think this is a really important distinction by one of the listeners also brought up uh, Venezuela in the chat room. Uh, he said the similar thing happened in Venezuela where workers were taking over ceramics factories and oil refineries, but similarly there, there was extremely little demand for what they were producing due to the collapse. So obviously setting up cooperative ceramic business is not really going to help you in a situation where, uh, nobody has money to buy anything. These worker-owned cooperatives would need to be something more along the lines of producing food and things that people need within the cooperative, um, and therefore you're producing something that will actually help people in the immediate sense. 
Um, and that's, I think, what people would have to recognize is the need to come together to produce what is needed. Because right now, this is one of the things about the economy that people don't recognize when they when they live in a supermarket world where everything happens to be distributed in these nice little rows where you could pick it up. Is as I've always said on many other shows, if aliens were to come and abduct all of our supermarkets and department stores, even if all of the resources were just sitting there, people would have no idea how to how, you know how to get things. You know. Uh, I mean, where does meat come from? Clearly, it comes from the supermarket shelves. You know, what? You mean somebody actually kills a cow? You know, I mean, although people know this, they don't really know what goes into it. They don't know what goes into, you know, the gathering of produce. They don't know what goes into, uh, you know, making clothing anymore. All of these basic survival skills do not, you know, do not exist with the average person. And, you know, you're going to have to have a circumstance where you can produce for yourself um, and, communities should get together and do the same thing in the event of such a collapse because just trying to make some ceramics so that you're hopefully going to be able to sell to people who don't have any money is not going to help you. You have to come together and put the effort that you would have put into that ceramic factory and finding ways to make it so that your community can take care of itself. They, um, and that's another thing is like there are so many other solutions that people have had, like uh, the precious metal solution, um, you know, like, well, just invest in a lot of gold. I think, you know, as storm clouds gathering, you know, Aaron and I talked about in a previous show when we talked about the petrodollar, you know, you can have mountains and mountains of gold. If you're in a situation where people don't have any food, they're not interested in your gold. Um, and therefore, you have to be able to, you know, look towards taking care of yourself, taking care of your family, uh, look into sustainable living, look into learning how to actually make your own food rather than being dependent on the system. Because everybody is. They, they don't really realize just how much of a machine the system that you know that fills those supermarkets and department stores really is. They don't understand how much of that infrastructure actually takes place in other countries. They don't understand that you know if one day money didn't mean anything because of a financial collapse, they would have nothing. You know it, it wouldn't matter because everything that we make now is usually made in other countries. The United States basically is enjoying its you know uh, kind of a a Roman lifestyle of living off of the backs of people in other countries all over the world. And eventually, you know, just like in Rome, that's all going to come crashing down. And if you don't have the ability to take care of yourself, um, you and your family are in for some very hard times if you survive at all. Hey, for, Fernando, uh, you know, kind of on the lines of what Neil was talking about, taking care of yourself, um, do you see people over in Argentina kind of investing in maybe like I, I saw someone put it up on the forum at the Modern Survivalist um, aquaponics and uh, hydroponics? Did do, do you see that at all in, in Argentina? Well, it, it's not something that is uh, widespread here. I, I, there's especially in the in the sm in small communities, uh, especially at first during the beginning of the crisis, there, there were attempts of, you know, neighborhood gardening and such. It's, the problem is that, well, on essence, it is, you know, it's understandable why you want to produce yourself the essentials you need. It makes perfect sense, right? Right. But from, from a greater perspective, you have a limited amount of time to work, and right. you have to make the most of that time. Is your time best spent cultivating the land and making directly the products you need, or is it better spent doing a profitable business that allows you to acquire much more for your time invested? Oh, so, okay. 
You know I, what I mean? So yeah, yeah. while it is a solution, I, I'm not saying it's not. For lots of people that, especially for people that had no education whatsoever, you know, instead of just staring at the sky, their time was much better spent, you know, cultivating the land and doing something about it and actually producing something. Now, if if you have a, more of a vision in some other ways, you might find a, other business opportunities created by the crisis, niches that are being left open, and, you know, do do better than that, do more than, than just providing the essentials for uh, to put food on the table. Because at the same time, it's extremely hard to cultivate and produce everything you need. Usually, in, I don't know any any case where anyone produces exactly the, the exact amount of food required for his family all by himself. It's right. very difficult. There's other ways that are more effective. Okay, I see what you're saying. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to touch on... I, I, I know this is kind of going on a tangent, but um, <clears throat> you know, I just wanted to ask before I forget. Uh, I, I've heard you say on um, on the forum, like you know, don't. Th there's not going to be a day where the shit that hits the fan and suddenly everything is, is different. But I don't know. Like I, I kind of feel like there that did happen for you in Argentina, like in December 21st of of 2001. Yeah. So I like. To me, like I, I kind of feel like there is a, you know, a day where the shit hits the fan, and and you know your your life has changed for a, a really long time. Yeah, there you could say there are these milestones where okay, when, when everything, when all hell breaks loose and everyone is looting supermarkets all around you and you're you know glued to the, your TV watching how the country goes up in flames, that that's a pretty important day. Yeah, but let's suppose something similar like this happens in USA. Let's suppose that next week from today, you see, you know, people getting completely fed up with the unemployment, with not being able to make it to the end of the month. You know, people just being so fed up that they gather in the street corners and they start, you know, protesting. Um, instead of making the right move, the president just uh, says nothing is happening, doesn't recognize doesn't accept even the problem. That's something that upsets people a lot, not recognizing that their claim is legitimate. You know, that upsets people more. And let's suppose that happens and there's, as you said, the Rodney King thing, there's looting and rioting on the streets. And, you know, 200 people get murdered across USA in different riots. That would be a key moment, right? You would say that in that day, yeah, there was a, an official SHTF, day. Uh, but at the same time, you, you still have to see that this had been going on for, for, for some time, right? It's right. not as if this, this happened just, just out of the gloom for no reason. It, it was a, the culmination of a process that had been going on for months, for years. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. It's like you gotta, you gotta read be, between the lines. You gotta see the, uh, the decay behind the system. A month Not only man. that, also on a personal level, we, today we live in a world where everything is more socialized. We we try to, you know, the, the right thing to do today is being social and <laughs> taking the other one into consideration, make sure no one gets offended and all that stuff. Uh, now, if you look at the individual level, because guys, we are all individuals, in spite of all this stuff that we're being fed from, from school, we're all individuals. 
and maybe your your story is different from the one from Neil and uh, Neil's neighbor he's been unemployed for for a year now and he's going through hell you know uh, when did all this start for that guy the guy that has been without a job for a year or the guy that is today living in a tent city in USA now oh well <laughs> you know it's it's interesting because it the, the other thing when people look at the looting and the rioting is is that people don't recognize the psychology of the situation. You look at your neighbor and you think, oh, my neighbor would never do anything like that, you know. Yeah, right. Th then you start <laughs> taking people's food away, you know. You know, and the the answer is, you're right. Your neighbor would never do anything like that as long as he and his children had enough food, had energy, had everything they needed. Then yes, they're going to behave just fine. That's the issue of the environment, the effects of scarcity. You see it right away. Like, even within my own home, I had at one point, like, we, you know, everyone in the house fell on hard times. I literally had people uh, telling me, you know, like, like roommates of mine, you know, none of them live here anymore, but they were stealing from each other within the house. You know, yeah. you, you, would, you, you would put food in the, in the kitchen and you'd mark your name on it, you know, like, say, a, a box of cereal or something that was just for you, and then people would start eating it. So then you'd have to move it into your room, you know, and then people would start going into your room to take your food. This, these are people that, like, maybe six months before all of this, you, you know, you could have left a $100 bill on the counter in the living room, and it wouldn't have been a big deal. You know, and, it, and it's not it, – it's just natural when you see the scarcity start to happen, you know, that the only human nature is that human beings will do what they feel they need to to survive, and that's why you have to create an environment – that makes survival easy so that, therefore, everybody is inclined to behave in a humane fashion. You know, yeah. you're going to see people who you trusted implicitly are going to turn on you. They're going to be examples of otherwise, which is why I suggest getting involved in your community, um, especially in a capitalist society where we're all taught every man for himself. You need, we, we need to get past that because that's what's going to destroy large quantity. You know, people are going to die from that attitude. Whereas if people worked collectively together to solve a lot of these local problems, you know, then everybody can benefit. And that's it's, as soon as everybody thinks it's every man for himself in a situation with very little law, in a situation with very little in the way of what, you know, what people need to survive, you know, people will start destroying themselves. You know, just like, I mean, you see it in nature. Every animal that is solitary, um, that works only with itself, when faced with a situation where they're, you know, where it, you know, will not have what it needs, becomes very aggressive, very territorial, you know, very inclined to take from other animals. Um, but when you have animals that are communal, like a pack of wolves, say, then they get together and they work on the problems. And there's going to be situations still within that pack where some people are not going to do as well as others. But, you know, we're human beings. We can move past that. You know, and that's something, that's the reason why I said to people, the secret to survival in these situations, it's not in precious metals. It's not even in how many guns you own. It's in your ability to find a way to deal with this scarcity. Um, I've been watching a, a TV series recently called Jericho. And it's about a, you know, basically it's about a, a theoretical nuclear war. Um, and there's this small town called Jericho that, for, you know, just by random chance, at least in the beginning of the story, you know, it looks like they just weren't hit with anything and none of the fallout came their way. And you watch as this small town community, these places that people move to because they believe that they'll evade any form of violence or any form of um, crime, slowly starts to tear itself apart. 
before good leadership steps forward and people decide to treat the issue as a community as opposed to just as individuals. And even within that, you know, like the lady who owns the store, oh my goodness, that lady, <laughs> that character just makes me want to vomit because she takes she takes the whole thing as an opportunity to personally profit. You know, like at one point, for example, one of the farmers is losing his crops and she has the only pesticide in the area that could save the crops. And so she basically extorts the farmer and says, well, you can bring your corn here and we'll split the profits 50-50. And he's like, what? You know, he's like, that's not even, the price of your, you know, uh, pesticide is not even a quarter of what that goes into making my crop. And she didn't care. You know, it was a matter of necessity. Um, you, you watch as the, the attitudes change, especially the people who have a lot. Their attitudes change a lot when the when the finances start to collapse. I remember I had a job at a 7-Eleven. Um, I had asked for one specific day off every month to do things with my family. And she had agreed to that when she hired me in. Um, and then uh, come the time for that one day, she schedules me anyway. And I said, well, hey, you know, I, I asked for this day off. She's like, yeah, I know. I also know you need a job. You know, as in she just flat out told me, you're just going to work because I said so, and um, if you're not, well, then I'm just going to fire you. You know, despite the fact that she had completely agreed to do that before, you know, these are the kinds of attitudes that are going to happen. All the employers in the area where I live now, where the unemployment is, like, actually reaching, like, 43%. Holy um, crap. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Um, and that's another thing, folks. When you're looking at unemployment <clears throat> statistics, remember that those statistics only reflect who is currently claiming unemployment. It does not reflect the majority of people in a situation like this who no longer qualify for unemployment. I ran out of unemployment, I think, like three or four years ago. So, therefore, my I am not currently um, counted as this, under the statistic of unemployment, but I'm there along with a whole lot of other people that I know. So, yeah, 43 to 45% unemployment in the state of Michigan. But you're only going to find those statistics if you go out and poll people yourself. You're not going to find them in the unemployment office. But basically, the employers in the area learn, ah, so I've got a stack full of desperate people. Well, that means that I can do whatever I want, because otherwise, you know, what are you going to do? I'll just fire you. This is another reason why I say the path to freedom is finding ways of becoming self-sustainable as much as possible. Unfortunately, that costs, you know, an initial investment. And many of us who are in the situation like I am, I mean, I'd love to get off the grid. The money just isn't there. And that's why I tell those of you who have the money right now, Rather than investing in an expensive education that is likely to become obsolete within a few years, in fact, almost none of my friends who got out of college are doing anything in the field that they studied, um, invest in infrastructure to be able to take care of yourself and your family. You know, that's, you know, that's what I've been telling people. You know, get off the grid if you can afford it now because there's going to come a point when it's not affordable. Uh, and those are the people who essentially are going to be, in a, you know, are going to be doing well as the ones who have it. And the ones who don't are going to be, you know, rioting, fighting back and forth for things, you know, that they need. And that's a situation you don't want to find yourself in. Some people like me, I don't think uh, if a financial collapse happens, I'm going to be in a position to be able to do anything positive. Um, I mean, one of those people who's just lost in the bottom. I've fallen through the cracks. There's no way that I can climb out of it. No amount of hard work would get me out of it. You know, there needs because we live in a situation right now within the capitalist system Regardless of how many resources are available to you, unless you can find a way to be more useful to someone who has money, you're done. 
you have to figure out a way to be more useful to someone who has money than them keeping their money. That's essentially what employment is. If I cannot figure out a way to be more useful to somebody who has more money than I do, well then, I guess I just get to starve. That's the absurdity of that system. Whereas people on the top of that system, they generally don't even have to work at all. They can sit there and collect you know, money based upon the labor of everyone else. This is why I say eliminate your boss. Get together in cooperative-owned businesses. Obviously, do so in a rational fashion, but do things along that line if you want to survive what's coming next because the, the ages of selling your labor are becoming less and less prevalent. People don't recognize the fact that there's going to be a time very soon where having a job is not even going to be an option. You know, go back and watch. There was a film uh, I watched about the Great Depression called Cinderella Man. It's got Russell Crowe in it. And you had just, you know, dozens and dozens of men standing outside the docks begging to work, you know, begging to have a job. These are not lazy people. It's just there's nothing there. You know, but we've come to a situation where society does not take care of itself. And this is where we're at. And if you're not careful, you're going to get stuck in that as well. Uh, Fernando, would you kind of agree with someone with uh, Neil said? Because, you know, I was reading in your book that uh, at a time you, you had to take a job at a at, at a call center. And uh, <laughs> yeah. you were making like a dollar an hour. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I worked for Microsoft from Argentina for a dollar an hour. Oh my god, that's a multi-billion corporation and you're yeah. saying that they're paying you a dollar an hour? It, but but I was the lucky one because I I spoke English. The guys that were doing it in Spanish for for Spain and other Latin countries, they were getting paid 50 cents an hour. Oh my god. I you know, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Um cuz clearly Microsoft could not afford to pay anybody else. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know they, they had to to take care of the bug, not not spend crazy, you know. Yeah. And you know, you, go ahead. Go, um, well, yeah. Well, an important note, and then I'll let you guys get back to what you were doing just real quickly. I've seen a lot of negativity towards outsourced workers. Um, that's not really the attitude to take, folks. These people are being exploited a lot. You know, don't get angry at somebody who's taken an outsourced job. They usually live in economies where taking 50 cents an hour, you're you're happy to get it because that's all you're gonna get. So don't hate the people that have taken these jobs. Hate the corporate executives who are taking advantage of them and you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, and, uh, you know, I was, I was reading your story while you were working there. You guys got, like, a 30-minute lunch break and, like, I think, like, one minute or, like, a five-minute uh, bathroom break, too. Yeah. It was, it was extremely, you know, it was semi-slave conditions. Yeah, in the in the break room they made sure you had no air conditioning. In Argentina, that's South America, guys. It's, it gets pretty hot. <laughs> just just so that you wouldn't stay there for a, for a second longer than what was needed for you to grab a bite and keep working. Jesus. So Jesus. so uh, one thing I wanted to get to was that so you were making basically a dollar an hour, so you're making eight dollars a day, right? Because you're working eight eight hours a day. Yeah. How much would for example, like, let's say you, you'd go to a, a restaurant, how much would a meal cost? You know, it's a, think of it as, as the same as it would cost you in USA. But uh, as our friend here was saying, you're working for 7-Eleven and they abuse you, but there's no other option. What are you going to do? It's either that or nothing. So 
if, if my options are nothing or a dollar an hour, I'm going to be working for a dollar an hour, you know? Absolutely. I think any of us would. Um, so I guess like a regular meal would, you know, in the United States, I would say around $5. So you're saying yeah, that... It, you know, I was making a, a dollar an hour, and and maybe for lunch I needed like uh, three, four bucks, uh, three bucks be, being careful, something like that. Oh wow! So I have to grab you know you know a sandwich, something not not very, not not very fancy. You can't you can't live off of that. You'd you'd have to have some type of side income, correct? Well, my wife was working as well. She she was doing better than I was. So, fortunately, oh. between the two of us, we got by. Nice. Nice. Well, that's good. That's good. Um, an, another uh, another question that I had for you, and and this is something that I I personally deal with is uh, I, I read your article what what kills you after an economic collapse, and um, you know a lot what you talk about is is you know survivalism. It's ninety percent is mental. Uh, yes. How like when when I read this article, I, I'm just looking at it right now and it 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 kind of depresses me a little bit you're saying like where i live eight people are murdered every 24 hours uh a hunger 3000 kids have died in march of 2010 in argentina when you when you read this information and and when you live through this type of situation what what do you how do you like d- dig deep down inside of you and just try to keep it as positive as possible. Like, what do you do? Because I'm, I'm, I'm having issues with that. I just, you know, it does affect me when seeing like so many people suffer, and and possibly eventually might I might see it on a day to day basis here in America. Yeah, by all means, it's 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 entirely possible, and I'm sure it's happening right now. That if if you go for a walk and you see what what people are going through, it's it's extremely easy to get depressed. If, right. At least what I did is, is try to stay positive as much as I could, and you know, at least it's not me. At least I'm, I'm being able to take care of of my family, and you know what? It's extremely sad when when you go with your kid and your kid asks you, "Hey, why is that little boy, you know, begging, looking for for food in the trash, and why is he barefoot? You know, when it's cold out here." You just you do your best to stay positive, and it just it makes you want to take care of your family even more, so that you don't end up that way right. yourself. And the amazing uh, thing about that is, you know, how as how people become used to it, you become desensitized to it. You yeah, you become pretty cold. I know some people that just can just walk past. A, a family eating out of the garbage and telling you, Argent, and I'm not talking about locals alone, right? I'm talking about people that come here visiting Argentina and Buenos Aires for on their vacations, and they would just walk by a, a starving kid scrounging through trash bags and telling you, Argentina is such a wonderful place, Fernando. You're you're so full of crap. This place is wonderful. What are you talking about poverty? And you know, it's like, please, could you turn around and see that little kid? Besides you eating out of the out of the trash you just threw away. Yeah, uh, you know, real quickly, uh, um, in the, in the beginning opening uh, part of Zeitgeist moving forward, you're dealing with that very same thing. And uh, you know, as I pointed out to people, 
I gave Peter Joseph an article to uh, uh, to describe what it's like outside these stores where they sell, you know, three thousand dollar handbags and one thousand dollar pairs of shoes. Is there's usually homeless people parked right outside of those places, and you got to imagine the mindset you have to be in to walk past a homeless, starving person and go buy a three thousand dollar handbag. I guess that's kind of smart of the homeless guy. He's like, these people have to have money. <laughs> right. So go ahead with what you were saying. I'm sorry. Yeah. The, no, it's, it's some people uh, take it that way. We saw it here with you know many tourists that came and they take pictures of themselves, uh, you know, hanging there with, with with the rioters and the looters, you know, as if it's all a, a big joke. And then wow. they go back home and say, look. I was right there in <laughs> in the roadblocks of Argentina, you know, thumbs up. Uh, I, I get it that it's, you know, when it's not happening to you, it's different. The moment you, you start seeing kids that look the way you do, that talk with your same accent, uh, kids that live down the road from where you live or in your same block, those kids starving, then it, it takes a very special person not to be uh, affected by that, you know? Now... Real quickly, because I, I wanted to point this out earlier, but 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 you know, it, basically, I want you all to sit and listen and uh, like go back when you listen to this archive to the description that he just gave of what it's like to work in a sweatshop factory, because that is the future of the labor caste. When they say to to American citizens who they've taken the jobs away from to outsource, you need to be more competitive. That's what they're talking about. They want you to be willing to accept 50 cents to a dollar an hour. They want you to have a five-minute bathroom break in a room that is made intentionally hot so that you won't stay in there. They want you to have only one lunch break. You know, This is what they want you to be willing to accept. That's the competition. If you're willing to accept that, then we'll give you a job. You know, and Think about that. You could not get away with that in the United States. You could never get away with that. And they know that. So they pick up their businesses and they head to places like Argentina – and they open up their businesses there so that they can get laborers who are so desperate that they'll take the scraps thrown off the table. That's the future of the labor caste. You don't want to be part of the labor caste because that's what they're going to demand of everyone. And the more they create machines, because that's the only thing that competes with somebody who will take a dollar an hour, is machines. You know, that's it. You know, uh, a machine, and, and as soon as they can get machines that are efficient enough to work at even lower costs, That'll be the end of the sweatshop worker. You know, they'll sell their stuff to each other. They don't even really care about the future of the economy at that point. These people are already, buy, you know, buying themselves houses and more land that they could ever need. You know, and that's the reason why when people start surmising about a new world order or whatever, I usually tell them to read, you know, Ayn Rand's book, uh, you know, wherein, uh, you know, all of the supermen, the, the rich people get together and sabotage the economy uh, and then live like kings waiting for everybody to come back begging them, you know, okay, well, we'll work for you now. You know, we we promise no taxes and, and, and no decent wages. You know, we'll do whatever you say. Just just come back and lead us with all of your money and your quote-unquote productive behavior. So I just wanted the people to think about that. You're looking at the future of the labor caste. When you're talking about sweatshop factories, that's what's going to be is what's going to happen if we want to have jobs because they're going to want you to give up little things like minimum wage. They're going to want you to give up little things like a decent break. They're going to want you to give up. You notice I said minimum wage. I didn't even say a fair wage. 
They're going to want you to give up things like vacations. Then they're going to want you to give up things like having a house that's not overpopulated because it's all you can afford. Then they're going to want you to give up things like having a decent, nutritious meal because that's all you can afford. You know, it, it's just a matter of time. The competition now is set at the lowest possible common denominator of, of health standards and of decent humans. You know, you know, uh, human decency. That's what that's what they want. That this is what they're willing to accept, and that's what they can because there's you know hundreds of thousands of people, well, millions of people who have been put in situations of poverty like that all over the planet who are so desperate to be able to be not starving that they'll take a life of slavery. So, I'm sorry about my little rant there. I just I know many people don't understand the actual pressing truth of this situation and just how dangerous it's going to be. Yeah, I I, I agree with you in, in in many things. I I disagree in some. For example, in terms of education, it's true that education, mostly in USA, where it's so frequently expensive that it makes no sense at all. But education is extremely important because it's what's going to be giving you the tools. Uh, by, by education, I mean the right education, okay? Mm-hmm. The right education is going to be giving you the tools to defend yourself from all this, okay? If you have a, a good education and a right education, you're going to be able to start your own business and not depend on, on these greedy guys that are making you work for an hour an hour for a buck an hour like like I did, you know, when when you have the richest guy on the planet indirectly being your employer, okay? Oh, so, well, let me let me clarify really quickly. When I say yeah. don't don't invest in an education that's going to be obsolete, there are so many yeah. things that people are going to college for right now that in a financial collapse aren't going to mean nothing. Yeah, yeah I, I think what he's talking about, Fernando, is more like um like a political science major, uh like a maybe like a liberal arts yeah, take, take take myself for example. I'm speaking with you guys in English because my parents paid a freaking fortune so that I went to a bilingual school and I had that tool to work with. I, I myself send my kid to a bilingual school as well because I want him to have more tools. Now, it's up to you to be smart enough and understand what it is in education and what is uh, crap that's just putting money into someone else's pocket. Right, okay? right. Absolutely. You Absolutely. have to be clever about that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> now, um, go ahead with. Uh, I, it was obviously Fabian. You had a lot of good questions for the for the guest, and you've listened to him a lot more than I have. So go ahead. Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, yeah, um, I, I follow this guy, uh, Mike Maloney, and uh, he he brings up an interesting point. He's He's saying that um, a lot of the stock markets trade the same. So, like, let's say, for example, when China does bad, uh, so does London, and then so does the U.S. I mean, it's not on every single day, but for the most part, the trend shows that all the stock markets move in the same direction as the United States. Um, You know, when the United States goes, do you feel that uh, Argentina is going to go back into another crisis, Fernando? Yeah, well, for example, during these last uh, uh, months, when you saw like Black Friday, Black Monday, and the stock uh, market uh, drops five points or something like that, uh, here it's usually even worse. It's usually even, you know, if it drops five, here it drops seven, you know? But we don't even feel it anymore because our our economy is already a mess. So, you know what I mean? 
If yeah. the Argentine stock market drops 10 points, no one cares much because it's not that important for us anymore. It already broke. Yeah. It's already at the bottom, so you're like, fuck yeah. it. <laughs> Sorry, but, uh, Neil, is, is it okay if I curse? I apologize. Well, yeah, I do have this listed as for everyone, so I'd appreciate it if you didn't. But um, oh. <laughs> there are some people who actually listen to this show with their kids. Oh. Um there are rare instances, like when Charlie Veach is on, he's asked me to do that, but I always change it to mature. Like, it's oh, okay. Um, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll stop. Cursing. It's okay, not everybody knows that. But anyway, go ahead. <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, like your your economy is already pretty low, so you don't think, uh, I mean, you don't think that you know if, if we crash, then it'll, it'll affect it's, you guys too much. You, you know what happened today? The, the situation is the following: you have the, 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 the developed countries, and you have the emerging countries, right? What used to be called the third world countries. Today, with the financial crisis hitting the first world countries the most, there's investors saying that you should be investing in places like Argentina, in third world countries, in Latin America, in Asia, and what happens is that. The more it, it gets uh, worse in, in USA, you, you do float a bit above that when you're at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, still, that's uh, not very realistic either because if your financer is uh, USA, if you sell to a European market, uh, it's impossible to be unaffected by all this. Right. But you, you know what, what I mean by that? Uh, the idea that you're going to be... Your investment is going to be safe in Argentina, in South America, because of this. It's not very realistic, but it does serve some people, some, some very smart people that have lots of money, like our friend here was saying, that uh, they profit from this. They sell you the dream of your, your investment being protected in Argentina, which is a load of, well, that we're, <laughs> that we're, <laughs> we're not going to be mentioning. Uh, it's not real. It's a, it's a fantasy to think that in Argentina and South America and other emerging countries, it, you never have to forget that these are all high-risk investments. If you're investing in, in Mexico, in Colombia, in Brazil, it's going to be a high-risk investment because those places aren't as stable as first-world countries. My suggestion to people is uh, first try uh, staying level-headed in spite of everything that is happening because it's extremely easy to get very upset with all this. And, right. You know, uh, be your own boss. Be your own boss, but be smart about it. Try finding the opportunities created by, by the event, by the crisis. There's always opportunities being created that you can take advantage of. Uh, you, uh, one, one more thing that I think uh, differently from, if you have a good idea, if you have something that people want, I mean, I started my website with exactly zero dollars of investment. Just created a blogspot, uh, created a blogspot blog, and started writing on it. And I was passionate about it, and still am. And that makes all the difference. Without even having a single dollar to invest, I I published a book without having a single dollar to invest either. And it's selling better than some multi-million publisher company uh, putting the, their same book competing with me on Amazon. Well, I, I definitely think that, you know, the reason why, you know, you're selling better than them is because people appreciate the truth. Like, you're coming from an angle of experience, and, you know, people really respect that. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that's 
that's the reason the the support I get from from the blog followers, people that have have been great for for many years now since I started writing. But uh, that's what I want people want to get across that there's always opportunities for you if you if you look and find them. Uh, yeah. I mentioned it, I mentioned it in the book as well. The guys that started, you know, uh, instead of taxis driving people uh, back and forth to from the suburbs to the downtown because fuel was too expensive for lots of folks. So uh, if they could save a buck, they would rather go with someone else. And that became a huge business for for someone that was clever enough to see the opportunity. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that it was like they just bought like a bunch of vans and then they would just transport people right back and forth to and from the city. Yeah, today today that same guy that started that company driving one or two vans, he has over a hundred vans and is owner of his own little empire. <laughs> That's actually it's an interesting amount of innovation. Um, you have to imagine uh, now uh, because I was not aware that you had a blog or a book before the show started. Can you take a moment to tell the listeners where they could check out your blog and your book? The blog is www.themodernsurvivalist.com, where there is also a forum where I usually hang out, and you know anyone that wants to ask questions or start a, a thread or something they want to be discussing, it's available there. And the book is The Modern Survival Manual, Surviving the Economic Collapse. It's available on, on Amazon on print-on-demand. Excellent, excellent. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to say, like, before I got to your website, I, I know you make fun of these guys, but, um, you know, I, this was new to me. Like, this this whole, like, collapse thing and, and just like the whole idea concept behind it was totally new to me and I, I was one of those like uh I was one of those Mad Max guys the uh, you know fighting off the zombies and uh you know I just wanted to say thank you because I, I feel like when I got to your website it, it got me very level headed. It gave me an idea of what I could potentially go through and, and just a more of a clear picture is what I was trying to say. I think I was taking things like way too extreme but no, I, thank I you, think... thank you for for the support and for for being interested in all this. And you know, have you been killing any zombies lately? No. <laughs> no, I, I kill zombies. I awaken them. <laughs> yeah. I, I kill dozens of them every day on uh, Left 4 Dead on, on the Xbox with my son. You know. But... <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you got to get prepared. You got to get your son prepared for the zombie apocalypse. All right, we actually have some callers on the board. I'm going to go ahead and bring one on now. Um, caller from the 575 area code, you're on the air. Hello. Um, call me Trey. I've uh, been a member of um, the movement since, I guess, wow, back in uh, January probably. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, and just to, I just wanted to toss out there, I think um, from my perspective, the things that, I know I do understand Zeitgeist Movement is about awareness, but also within that, you know, you, how often can we teach by showing the way? And in doing so, um, the things that we I feel that we mostly need to be focused on before collapse occurs and even as it's beginning is getting the food and the power situation dealt with. And as community, why aren't we working together more so at the local level and focused on being getting up like geothermal power 
setups. Um, I've got hot springs all around me in New Mexico. Um, be a great place to start there, as well as like Omega Garden slash Tilapia Farm setups. You know, um, small investments. Ultimately, you're talking thirty, maybe thirty thousand dollars to have a farm setup that could easily feed, you know, probably several hundred people consistently. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know one of the reasons why that that isn't done more so. Um, in communities, because it's really expensive. Like to to have like your house run on solar panels, it just it's a big investment, which a lot of people just don't have right now. Um, well, no, I farm, totally understand. I, yeah. Go ahead. I see. I, um, you know, I'm on social security, and um, you know, I just I've tied myself up into you know, I bought a $500 solar panel. I'm still working on batteries for my battery system. I'm still on the grid because I can't get that, you know, solar panel fully running functional to be able to power my house yet. So, you know, I totally understand the whole aspect of the investment, but at the same time, if I can put living on Social Security, you know, I only make about, I only end up with about $800 a month to work with in Silver City, New Mexico. Um, the United States, we all understand who live here, $800 a month barely feeds you, let alone... Yeah. You know, actually trying to live, all you get to do is barely survive. Colin, so, you're, you're actually breaking up pretty badly. There's something going on there with the blog talk uh, link up. Um, if you want to go ahead and call right back, let's see if that fixes the problem. Okay, and I apologize if I sound like I'm rambling, but yeah, I'll call. Well, back. you're not doing anything wrong. It's just I can't I can't really understand you, which means neither can the listeners. So go ahead and call right back, and we'll see if the connection issue solves itself. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, he makes a good point, and it, it, it's a very valid one. Uh, of course, the, the initial investment is expensive, but especially in some areas, it, it makes lots of sense to have your own uh, solar solar power system working, uh, even if it's just charging batteries at first, then upgrading it more. Um, I mean, it's I, I don't find it as the solution to everyone to have your uh, grow your own food for a living. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with having your own uh, orchard and having your own vegetables, your, your own farm, if that's what uh, you're passionate about and you feel you can make it work. That's, that's all great. Uh, if, if it applies to you and you can make it work, by all means. Now we uh, brought the caller back. Let's see if that improved anything. 575, you're on the air. Right on. Is, am I helping at all? Yeah, you sound much better. Go ahead. Right on. So I guess ultimately, where what I'm saying with the with the food production aspect of that and setting this stuff up is is working within community itself. Uh, we keep talking about building this community and building awareness. You know, if you've got a thousand people in a you know in a small town, and you can get whatever even 20% of those people together to to put in, you know, 200 people each toss in 10 bucks a month. Pretty soon you've got the necessary funding to be able to put in a decent size, you know, setup that could easily feed all those people, you know, comfortably both, you know, with the tilapia farm, both protein and their vegetation. Yeah. That's just No, it's it's not a bad yeah. idea to to look into and I definitely think it's a better investment than a lot of the other things that people are investing in now. Um there is an initial cost, but I know what you're talking about. The tilapia farm that basically create an ecosystem wherein, you know, the the fish 
you know, obviously, you know, they, they provide the fertilizer for them, the plants that you grow within that, that system. Um, and it would be, it would definitely be good, a good system for people to look into, particularly in community levels. You're better off starting projects like that in a small town where you can get a hold of everybody, you know, go to city council meetings and things of that nature. And maybe you can get people to commit to something like that. I think that as the the system begins to break down, people are going to recognize more and more that these things are not just a good idea. They're kind of a requirement, especially when the infrastructure that, as I was saying previously in the show, begins to break down. You know, people don't know where tilapia comes from. They don't know where bananas come from. They don't know where oranges come from. You know, these people have no idea that, you know, one day during a collapse, they're going to go to the store and there's not going to be any tilapia. There's not going to be anything that isn't local. Um, and that's why I tell people not to become dependent on it. Um, I heard somebody uh, inhale the talk. Go ahead. Yeah, I was about to. I was going to. Yeah. I started to laugh. Was, oh, no, I was talking about whole, somebody whole, else on the, the call. <laughs> but you're actually, you're you're cutting up again. So thank you very much for calling in. And um, thanks for your view, too. Thank you for listening to V Radio. On the, on the subject lines of uh, the, kind of like the system breaking down, uh, you, you guys have a lot of blackouts, correct, Fernando? Well, lately not, not as much as we did, especially during summertime, it gets very bad. And, you know, one of the things that you probably know is that I, I always mention the, the in-between thing of, the in-between aspect of things. Uh, sometimes it's not that you have power or not, they just give you power that doesn't work for you. Like, for example, here we use a, a 220 volts, right? Right. But during summer, if, if they're not cutting power, they just give you 170 volts. And that's not enough for most of the appliances you have to even work. So you have to find solutions for that gray zone in between, in between having power and not having it. You know, and I, I bought myself one of these voltage elevators that, you know, changed everything for me, makes everything work much better. But, you know, finding solutions for a, for the grid that is slowly failing. Right. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point that somebody just brought up in the chat room. The system is producing people who live on less and less and less land. You know, there was a time when the idea of living in an apartment and not having any land of your own was, like, unheard of. Um, and when you think about it now, you know, as more and more people move into the city, into these little apartments, they become more and more dependent on the system because they couldn't produce for themselves if they wanted to. There's no means by which for them to do it. Now, if you think about a future where everybody is dependent on, you know, uh, capitalist-based grocery stores and department stores for everything that they own, and they have no feasible way to ever be able to produce for themselves, that creates a system of plutocracy, you know, plutoc you know plutocratic fascism at that point, because the people with the money, you know, own, who own everything that people need to survive, well, um, at that point, you know, they have everything. It's it's worse than having power over you with guns and tanks or whatever. It's it's the absolute essence of life is owned by people over top of you. And unless you could find a way to you know to be employed by some of these people, then you have nothing. When when you when you say they, Neil, do you are you, are you talking about like corporations or like what? Yeah, mostly corporations. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, think about it. You know, think about the, the change in lifestyle that we've had over the course of the, the centuries. You know, I always use the example of, like, uh, watching Little House on the Prairie. Those people owned their own land, and they had to go to the general store maybe once a month, you know, to get some tools or whatever. 
But they generally were able to take care of themselves. And don't get me wrong, they still fell on hard times from time to time. You know, and Mr. Ingalls would go work at the mill. But if for some reason the mill were to cease to exist, you know, he he and his family would still be able to reasonably be able to take care of themselves. But if you're living in an apartment, you know, with your allotment of, like, you know, a bunch of small rooms, and you have no (laughs) meat to produce for yourself, you're completely dependent upon the system. Right, right. I um, think we've we've gone a long way in other in other aspects as well. You know, we're not going to be going back to the amount of land per per citizen anymore. It's impossible in many ways to go back to those times. But at the same time, you know, you have much greater life expectancy now than than people had back then. You know, they they lived until they're they were 40, and the, the child's mortality rate was, was awful. So while we've gone backwards in some things, we've gone forwards in others. I, I yeah. think it's just trying to be smart and learn how to play the system and not let the system play you. Right. I, uh, <clears throat> so I, I had another question about, like, uh, you know, going through something like this, what is your recommendation uh, for 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 uh, preparing for these type of situations, like uh, like what what would you say, like some some type of uh, storage of food would be where to start, or well, I think you have to start in in several aspects at the same time. You know, I, I sometimes when I do the posts in in the forum and the, the blog and all that stuff, uh, I try to you know, do the itemized thing one two three four five. But the truth is that you should start in, in several levels at the same time. Starting with yourself, with how you are with, with your own body, if you're in, in proper physical shape, if you're working out. Uh, that's, that's very important because one of the things that kill you most, as, as you probably read, is that the stress of all this situation affects you physically. So if you're already in a poor physical condition, and I'm not talking about being, uh, you know, the cover of, of Sport Illustrated. I'm talking about working out two, three times a week, uh, being in in acceptable physical shape right. as best as you possible can within your limitations, of course. Um, then thinking of your finances as well, not being able to to get your own source of income is a huge problem when you have 25% unemployment. As we were talking about before, uh, the official rate is 10% unemployment, but there's other neighborhoods where it may as well be 40% unemployment. And as we were saying before, the way in which they measure unemployment is a huge difference. Sometimes I don't, I don't bother with, with numbers because they don't mean much. Uh, if I tell you that Argentina today has 10% unemployment, you will be saying, okay, that's not that bad. But then when you look at the way in which they gather that information, you see that in the last census, they asked people if they did anything that would be considered a, a job for four hours for the last week. And the answer was yes, you were uh, you were uh, considered employed. Yep. So maybe you you were mowing the lawn in your backyard. And you, you walk your dog? Make... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember you talking about that off the air. Yeah, go ahead and repeat all of that. You're basically, they, they, they asked you if you did any kind of work at all, and then they counted you as employed. Talk yeah, about and, denial. Yeah. Uh, what does what does that mean? What does it mean anymore when I tell you that unemployment is ten percent when you know that they're measuring it that way? Uh, what does it mean for me to tell you that unemployment is ten percent when the government 
issues gloves to people collecting garbage to eat, and they call them a, a pub, public employees. You know, the people right. that already were already collecting cardboard to sell for recycling and, and make a living somehow. They just gave them gloves, a, a jacket with uh, illuminating stuff, and he was a, he's a, a, a government employee as from now. You know? <laughs> oh, jeez. Did he get a pension too? <laughs> it, it's uh, it, it's crazy. So finding a way of being financially independent, even if you have whatever line of work it is you have right now, starting your own home business at some level. It, it's it's pretty important if you're an accountant having your own office at home, even if it's just starting with making the cards. I don't know. There's so many people that got by so so starting their. I mean, housewives selling candles with scents and finding a way to selling it to their friends. Just okay. as, as an as an example of of what I've seen people actually do. So just anything that brings a buck. Just try to think outside of the box of new ways to kind of um, bring services to people in, in your area. Yeah. If you have something that you can sell to people, if you have an idea that you think could be financially viable, starting your own company with that. Okay. At least it's better than having nothing and one day being an employee and, you know, sitting home staring at the wall with, not, with anything to do. Yeah. So... Starting with you, about your question, first physically your own your own person, your own body, your own uh, managing your own level of stress. Right. Then financially having ways of being self-sufficient financially speaking, self-sufficient at home if you start a garden, if you have some some animals at home as well, if that's possible for you, by all means do that as well. Stocking up on food and water, which we I mean that's basic and we've covered that many times. Uh, canned food and all that stuff. You know, the Red Cross recommendation is usually 72 hours, but that's that's uh, old school. Today you have to think that uh, uh, an instant for a person is being without a job for 6, 12 months. So you have to plan on being able to sustain your family for those 6 and 12 months. Okay? Uh, that would be another aspect. Then from, from the safety aspect, when all this is happening, there's going to be an increase in crime level, which you are already seeing in all the developed nations. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a problem for those that don't have tools for, for self-defense, but those living in USA are lucky enough to have the Second Amendment make good use of it, you know. Even, I'm not pretending anyone to become Rambo or anything or spend half their paycheck on, on, on firearms training. At least having a, a weapon for self-defense at home and getting the basic safety a course to us to know how to use it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Uh, um, you stated that uh, there was a statistic that just having a, a firearm sometimes just gets you out of the situation altogether. Like, you don't even have to shoot anyone. Just if, if, if someone knows you have a firearm, they'll leave you alone. Well, it happened to me many times. It happened... I don't. I cannot think of a single person that I know... In, in my shooting club that takes training that hasn't been involved in an incident such as that at least once. Yeah. I mean, there's many of us that have been in, in, in gunfights. There's people that have had to kill in self-defense. There's uh, a friend of us that recently got killed doing a, a home invasion. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, Hernan, right? What was his name? Yeah. 
uh, Hernan Pecora, he, he got killed during a robbery. If you don't at least have something for self-defense, you're in a pretty vulnerable situation. At least have something in your house. I was reading recently a, a link posted in the forum. These flash mobs. This guy, he, he was in his house. He saw a couple of kids running in his direction. They were being followed by, by some other kids that wanted to beat them up because they were white. They rushed into his house, and he was suddenly out of thin air facing a, a mob of people that wanted to kill him, basically. Wow. You know? If you don't have something to defend yourself in that situation, what are you going to be doing? Well, it's, um, it's statistically proven in, like, in states like Texas, for example, where you're allowed to carry that the crime rates go down steadily um, because it kind of amounts to it's just like you know, even just burglar alarms. You know, a burglar comes up and he sees the sticker that you have a burglar alarm. They're just going to skip your house and move on to the next one. It's kind of a matter of the risk involved. If if there's not a lot of risk to rob you know person A, well then I'm obviously going to rob person A over person B who I know who know who owns a firearm. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it, did your did your friend Hernan? You you said that uh, like six was it like six people broke into his house or? No, it was it was just two, but uh-huh. he he wasn't he wasn't armed at that time. Oh, he, okay. You know, it's one of those things that you you wish would have gone down differently. He Hernan he was very well uh, he was very well trained in the use of, of firearms for defense. He was he actually won many tournaments on practical shooting. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we just you know it it hurts to think uh, of how things would have been different if he had been armed. Yeah, but you know we, we say it all the time. If you don't have it with you at that moment. You're not going to be rushing into your gun safe and picking whatever it is you like the most. Your, your weapon has to be with you at all times, especially in a place like USA where you have, you're blessed with having the Second Amendment, not making good use of it. it really, it's something that people should, should uh, look into it much more. Okay. Uh, and it's not as if, as you were saying before, it's not as if you're going to be shooting anyone that looks you wrong. I mean, I've gone through yeah. that myself. They, they try to rob you. They, you, they see you are armed, and they go looking for for the easier victim. Is like the parallelism with the house that has the alarm system, the house that has the big dog. They go looking for the easier target. Right. And in, in the case of a of an armed robbery, in, in the case of a mugging attempt, if they see you are able to defend yourself, usually they turn around and leave. Of course, you have to be ready. In case they don't, right, right. They're like, oh, this isn't where I parked my car. I right? over here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, something they blurb something out and yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it it it, it sounds you know it, it sounds crappy having to to carry a gun to to defend yourself, but. You know, like like you're saying, like as unemployment keeps going up, crime's going to increase, and you as an individual, unfortunately, you, you might you might you have to protect yourself. So that's just you know the 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 thing I see that the mindset aspect of this would actually be enjoying carrying your gun and liking your gun and going shooting eventually. If it if you make it part of of what you what what is what is it that you like doing, 
that mm-hmm. again that's something that in USA it's extremely common there's lots of people that like guns in USA the thing is that most of them don't carry it if you make it like part of of, of the way your you make it part of your EDC the, the thing you keep in your pocket what you make it part of your daily uh, ritual so to speak you you get your wallet your cell phone and your gun and you go out the door and you live a perfectly normal happy life but you're still armed okay it, the, like, the day <laughs> the day that something bad happens you're ready for it right i mean i mean to me it's kind of like i don't know i'm trying to think of like an, a good analogy maybe it's 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 just kind of like being like a mechanic it's just tools like if if you need it in a certain situation it's there for you but it's just, it is it is a tool. a tool yeah it is a tool if now something else that you have to to consider is you have to enjoy your preparedness okay i i do i i love what i do right and then there, i i get it that that might as well be just me and there's a hundred other guys that think that i'm completely nuts and would never do anything of the things that i do Right. But you have to find a point in between where you can live with it, where where you're okay with what you do or with your life, and you still have some 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 form of of preparedness. Yeah, I could tell you of of a guy that takes classes with us. He he got into a carjack attempt. He had no gun, but he had a knife, <laughs> and two guys armed with firearms tried to rob him. But okay, he was lucky and. Uh, the opportunity presented itself right with his knife. He he got one of the guys and the other one escaped. But he uh, had that that fighting spirit. Okay, he had not only the knowledge of how to do it, but he had it in him to react that way as well. I mean, for for me, I look at it different from a different angle. I I don't see it as a fighting spirit. I just see it as you love your life. You know, you you want to be here. You know, because you. Yeah you feel like you can contribute to the world um, and, and, and it's not your time. You know, of course. I would also add, um, no, go ahead, finish your sentence and then I'll go. Yeah, that if, it, it may be different for different people. For, for someone else, it may be just what you said, that he values his life, so maybe he's not going to be spending his weekend like I do in the shooting range training with, with our like-minded guys, but he will at least have a firearm in his, in his uh, in his person, keep it with him in his pocket maybe, which you know something the, the little pocket guns aren't something that I like much. But maybe for him, it's just having a 38 snubby revolver, putting it in his jacket, in the pocket of his jacket, and going on with his life. And he just takes a a couple of hours, twice, a, once a month or every two months, so as to have some basic skills with that tool he carries. And then that's it for him. He's not spending more time than that in, in that aspect. You know, it also, what I was going to say is it would seem that if you can, it would be best that you also look into hand-to-hand training, like your ability to defend yourself absent a weapon. I mean, obviously, you know, we all know that that's not going to necessarily help you as much, obviously, when the, uh, the other person has a gun and you don't. But particularly, you're going to end up in situations where somebody might be jumping you, they might be grabbing you. I mean, especially if you happen to be somebody who's physically small, you know, you, you register as a low threat on their radar to somebody who may not even have a gun. Um, I, I tell people to look into that. And, and also, just beyond the issue of just knowing what to do, uh, there, there, I've taken martial arts in the past, and there have been times when I've been in classes where I'm like, you know, 
I know there are people in this classroom who know more than I do, but they've never been in a violent situation in their lives. It's like you get the feeling you could just get up and just start punching them in the face and they wouldn't know what to do. They would know what to do, but would they be able to react to an actual life-threatening situation? Having grown up in some really terrible, you know, cities, you know, I do have an instinct of what to do if somebody's, you know, beating me up, but a lot of people don't, you know. Um, I think it's, it's something you're going to have to face both ways in that, you know, there's going to be violence, you know, but people do run out of ammo, and sometimes you don't have your gun on you, and sometimes your attacker may only have a knife, you know. There are any number of different things that you should be considering about taking care of yourself in a financial collapse situation. Yeah, and it's a good point. Of course, when I when I talk about firearms, I'm also including that it's part of it's one more of your tools, but your body is also it. Carrying your knife with you also it's another tool that you may be using for other purposes as well, but might as well be used for defense. Uh, if you find ways of integrating what it is that you like, if if you work out and at the same time you you get a hand-to-hand training, if you find a sport, judo uh, for judo, I don't know how is it that you, you spell it in in, in English, uh, Brazil Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well. Those are all sports. Boxing are all sports that you may do it as something that is entertaining for you. It's good for your body and it's also giving you tools in case you have to defend yourself. Absolutely. Now, um, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm really glad that, you know, uh, we had this talk. Uh, I want to give it, you know, once and again an opportunity to, uh, because, like, I I had people in the chat room. I went ahead and got the blog for them, but can you go ahead and, we're going to give the URL to your blog again, themodernsurvivalist.com. Yeah. Um, Yeah, And your book there, Surviving the Economic Collapse. Uh, Yeah. Just to be able to get people on this along this line, Stormcloud's Gathering does a lot of this same kind of uh, stuff. You can find his YouTube channel on my links um, page on vradio.org. And um, I want to thank you both for coming on for about this. If I had known actually about this ahead of time, I would have um, put it all in the, the description of the show. We could have, you know, we could have talked, did a show specifically about your blog and about, you know, about your book, and maybe we could do that at another time if you're interested. Yeah, by all means, whenever you want, just give me a call and we'll we'll organize it. Excellent. Now, um, that being said, uh, I actually have some things that I need to get done today, so I'm going to have to cut this you know, episode off. But um, thanks again for coming on today, and um, thanks again also, Fabian, for, for setting this up and some of the great questions that you asked today. You know, it was obvious you had more background with the guest I was not aware of. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sorry if I kind of took over. I, I apologize. I don't, I don't mind that. That, that. There is no takeover. V-Radio is for the people. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, and your questions were good and solid, and they and they fit in well. You know, like, there was no interrupting or anything. It was good timing. So, um, And once again, folks, uh, thank you for tuning in to V-Radio. Uh, V-Radio is still very much hurting for donations this month. Please consider going to my website, v-radio.org, and clicking Donate. Um, if I cannot get the, the what I was looking at now, there have been a couple of donations over the course of the, of the broadcast, but if I can't get what's listed there now, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So um, do me a favor then, and you know, if you think V-Radio is worth something to you, please do me a favor and um, continue to support it. Um, and do everyone else a favor who's obviously enjoying it or getting good information like we've had on today. Um, thanks again, everyone. I'm going to leave you guys with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows.
This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.